I'd like to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, continuing our study through the book of Romans. We have gone to the heights of glory in Romans chapter 8, and now we turn to consider the burden of the Apostle Paul. That he is burdened by unbelief. In Romans chapter 9, we'll look at the first 13 verses of Romans 9, 1 through 13. Beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. Well, blessed congregation, I have a dear friend who was raised staunchly Roman Catholic with Sicilian father and a Sicilian set of grandparents. Uh, My brother was taught to do your best in this life and trust the church for the rest. And oh, what a joy it was to study the Bible with this friend of mine and Over the course of years and sermons and Bible studies, he came to know that it's not about what I can do. It's not about trusting any earthly institution, even an institution as great as the church. But it is about trusting in Christ. And it is about being justified as if he had never sinned or been a sinner when he placed his hope and his trust in Jesus. You should have seen the joy this brother had. The hope he had in Christ. Oh, the rejoicing in his heart. But it wasn't long after that he began to ask the question, but what about my parents? What about my grandma? What about my family? You see, this tension can exist in believers. 
we can have both the hope and the joy of knowing Christ and the true Gospel and also be burdened with the unbelief of others. And we see this contrast in Romans 8 and 9. And there may not be a greater contrast between chapters of the Bible than right here. From no condemnation, more than conquerors, no separation. Look at what Paul says in verse 9, to I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my spirit. From exultant to broken. From an unchanging hope to an unceasing sorrow. From jubilee to burden. And this isn't the sorrow of just having a bad day. Or a bad month. Or even a bad year. What Paul is talking about here is his deepest sorrow. His greatest burden. And what is the saddest thing a Christian must go through in this life? I'm asking you, what is the saddest thing a Christian must go through? It's not rejection. And it's not failure. It's not even death. Because in all those things, we are more than conquerors. The saddest thing a Christian must endure is unbelief. When we have friends and family who reject the Gospel, and if they continue in that unbelief, we know that they will go to hell. That is the saddest thing the Christian endures. That's the pain that remains. That is the pain that wakes parents up in the night. That's on the forefront of our minds. A burden that maybe some of you are even dealing with today. See, Paul, after considering the great hope that the Gospel gives to believers, is burdened by the unbelief of his kinsmen. Of Israel. He is horrified by the thought that his friends, his family, if they reject Christ, will go to hell. And this leads him to an even scarier question, which is, you can see in verse 6, if God's Word has failed to save Israel, can the Gentiles have any assurance that His Word is strong enough to save them? You see this great burden here? Great fear and trepidation? But what we need to see as well is that there is great hope in this passage. Paul finds comfort in this. In the sovereign, unchanging election of God. That he looks at his own heart, and he looks at the history of the Bible and the history of this world, and he realizes that if God, or if it were up to us, we would have never have chosen Jesus. But by the grace of God, we are chosen in Jesus. He chooses sinners like us.
And this gives Paul great hope. That's our theme for our time together this morning. Burdened by unbelief, the godly receive comfort beyond words when they consider God's eternal decision. Burdened by unbelief, the godly receive comfort beyond words when they consider God's eternal decision. Paul teaches us what to do when we are burdened by unbelief. Point one, crying out to our gracious God. Point two, relying on His steadfast Word. And point three, trusting in God's merciful election. First, notice that Paul is crying here. I wonder if when these pages were sent to Rome, they were stained with tears because Paul is crying as he's writing this. Because he knows that so many of his fellow kinsmen, the Israelites, hated God and had rejected Christ. This is like when you're at a wedding and in the midst of the joy, you can't help but notice that somebody who died that last year isn't there. Or when you're at a Thanksgiving meal and you can't help but notice that that person estranged from your family isn't there with you. Paul is jubilant in Romans 8, but he is in anguish in Romans 9. And his anguish bubbles up to the surface. You see this in verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul uses a rhetorical device here in order to emphasize what he's about to say. It's what we call a Hebraism. You see it all throughout the Bible. Think of Isaiah 6, the angels in the presence of God. Instead of saying He is the holiest God, they just say, holy, holy, holy. Three times. Or Jesus in His Gospels, when He's about to tell the church the truth, rather than just saying, I'm going to tell you, the, tell you something, He says, truly, truly, I say to you. That threefold repetition means what I, that what I'm about to tell you is the absolute, unvarnished truth. And what is the truth that Paul is going to tell us? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my spirit. The depths of Paul's anguish here, congregation. I don't know if many of us have felt something like this. See, that word great sorrow means a feeling of depth in your innermost being. This is the same word Jesus uses in John 16 to describe child labor. Unceasing anguish, meaning that it doesn't go away. Everywhere Paul goes, every time he's out in the synagogue, in the market, with his family, at the forefront of his mind is his friends and family who don't know the Lord. And this is going to be the main subject of Romans 9-11. through There's victory for the church. But what about Israel. How can we exalt in the triumph of God's grace and it seemed to have so little effect among the people of Israel? Remember that Paul has said in the book of Romans that the Gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. 
Jesus had to die for Israel just as much as he needed to die for the pagans, for the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 1.16, if you want to flip there, he says the Gospel is actually to the Jew first and then the Gentile. So then why are God's people of old still in unbelief? You know, this is further exacerbated by all the blessings that Israel has had received over the years. Notice that in verses 4 and 5, Paul enumerates eight blessings that Israel had. They are Israelites. That harkens back to the patriarch Jacob when his name was changed from Jacob to Israel because he had seen the fairy face of God wrestled with God. It spoke to their privileged status. Adoption refers to their being redeemed from slavery. Glory refers to the fact that God filled the tabernacle in the temple and they saw His glory. The covenants refers to their promise to be their God. The law refers to the Ten Commandments. Worship refers to the fact that He established a way for them to be in His presence. Promise speaks to the fact that the Messiah would come. And then most importantly, number eight, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. They had Jesus. They had His flesh. His blood. His teachings. His person. His miracles. His Gospel. And this is the final blessing Paul mentions. The eighth blessing. Because all those other seven pointed to Him. To be an Israelite was to point to God. To Jesus. To be adopted, saved out of Egypt pointed to Jesus. The glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promise. All of it was for the purpose of focusing them on Christ. And then at God's time, He sent His Son who was born of Jewish parents. He had Jewish blood. He lived and ministered among them. And what does John say at the beginning of his Gospel? His own people did not receive Him. See, this is the problem that Paul is facing. These are the blessings that Israel had. All of these privileges. All of these promises. But they didn't have the thing that counts. They didn't have what matters. They didn't have the substance which is Jesus Christ. See, one of my friends and mentors, Harry Zechveld, I think puts it well here. He said, with all of these blessings, you would have thought that Israel would have, like a river, come to Christ. That they would have seen this person and said, yes, this is our Messiah. And there would have been a trickle, maybe, of Gentiles who would come to embrace Christ. But instead, it's the opposite. It's the Gentiles who are filling the church. It's the Gentiles who are embracing the Gospel. It's the Gentiles who worship Christ. And it's the Jews who even to this day have largely rejected Christ. And so Paul is so broken here. He says something we can scarcely even imagine in verses 2 and 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying here? Accursed means anathema. Devoted to destruction. Cut off means to be severed from God's fellowship. Paul is saying, I am willing, I would be willing, to trade places with unbelievers. He wishes he could go even to hell. That his Jewish brethren could be saved. Now, Paul here is speaking hypothetically. If you flip back to Romans 8, we are assured that there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's heart hasn't caught up with his head here. He knows that God is sovereign, he knows that salvation is God's gift but his heart is still broken by the fact that he has friends and colleagues who have said, Paul, I heard what you have to say about this Christ, but he isn't for me. Verse 3 then should not be viewed as a dogmatic statement. It is an expression of Paul's heart for the lost. And it comes from Christ, doesn't it? Who else would say, I will trade places with the unbeliever? Who else would say, I'll endure God's wrath. I will take on hell for their sake. But Jesus, Paul is mimicking Christ here. But He shows us the right attitude, the right posture when our hearts are broken by unbelief, when our friends and family reject the Gospel to cry out to God. See, maybe some of you resonate with Paul this morning. You have a friend or a sibling or a child who has rejected the Gospel. You can cry out to God. God promises in His Word to hear and to listen to your prayers. And we as Reformed people believe that God works through prayer. Paul is actually being a good example of bringing our co-workers, bringing our neighbors and our friends and our families to the Lord in prayer. Be like that faithful widow in the Gospel of Luke coming to the unjust judge. Not that God is unjust, but crying out for justice. Hear my cause. Hear my cause. Hear my cause. And you never know when the Lord will use that prayer to save. There's another aspect to this. I especially want to speak to our younger boys and girls here in church today, but also to the parents. But isn't it so much more awful when those who have so many blessings and privileges reject the Lord than when those who grew up without Him reject Him? You have been given in your catechism studies, in the being reared and raised in this church or whatever church you're from, 
uh, being given all of those blessings that Paul speaks about in those first few verses, you have been given these things as well. And you've been given Christ. Do not reject Him. Just having the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, Paul says, is not enough. You need to come to the fruition of those promises. Grab onto Christ by faith and trust Him for your salvation. So the subject, as I mentioned, from Romans 9-11 through is going to be the question in verse 6. Has the Word of God failed? If Israel had all of those things and rejected all what it pointed to, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the Word of God failed? And in Greek, verse 6 actually begins with an important word. No. Ook in the Greek. It's like before Paul can even finish thinking of the question, he blurts out, no, God's Word has not failed. Because God has promised that His Word would never fail. God has promised in the Bible that His oaths, His promises, His Word shall never fail. The grass may wither, the flowers may fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The prophet Isaiah, and maybe this is the most important one, says, my word goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing to which I sent it. We can be assured that our God has a plan. Our God has a purpose in this world, and He has goals for you and I, and though they may be different than our purposes and our goals. Again, Paul is struggling here. His head tells him intellectually, God's word can never fail, but his heart struggles to understand. Again, how can Israel have that Word, have those covenants, have the promises? And I think Paul is really torn in two directions here. So Paul does what we all should do when we're torn apart. He digs into the Word of God. He digs into the Old Testament. In chapter 9, there are 15 Old Testament references. And as he's digging in the Word, as he's struggling to understand, he comes up with this answer, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because you are part of the nation of Israel, doesn't mean you're a true Jew. Just because, again, as Harry Zechfeld says, you have the blood of Abraham coursing through your veins doesn't mean you have the faith of Abraham coursing through your soul. 
And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. See, Paul is burdened that not many of his fellow Israelites are embracing the Messiah, but when he looks back to Abraham, he sees that he had the same problem. It was Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Isaac with his children. It was Jacob, not Esau, who belonged to Israel and are the offspring of Abraham. Now you know the story of Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham is impatient for the fulfillment of the promises, and so he takes the Egyptian wife, or Egyptian Hagar as his wife. And in Genesis 16, we see that Abraham has a son, Ishmael. And 13 years later, God fulfills His promise to Sarah and opens Sarah's womb, and she gives birth to a son, Isaac. Both boys have the same father, same circumcision, same promises. Same education, same culture, but God says it was through Isaac, not Ishmael, that your offspring shall be named. It was Isaac who grew up to become a patriarch. It was Isaac, Hebrews 11, who blessed his sons by faith, it says. While Ishmael departs from Abraham and Isaac, he becomes fierce and angry and even mocks and persecutes the church. Paul says the most important thing is not what you can trace your flesh back to. The most important thing is are you a child of the promise? See, God's people aren't those who are of the flesh. God's people are children of of the promise. When God promised Abraham he would have a son, remember that Sarah was barren, Genesis 11. She was past menopause, Genesis 18. She was 90 years old, Genesis 17. Abraham doubted, Sarah laughed in unbelief, Genesis 18. But there is nothing too hard from the Lord. And God fulfilled His promise in her despite everything that was working against it. And she bore that child, Isaac. And as she held that little one, there was no reason that baby should have been there except that it was by the divine power and sovereign grace of God. Isaac's birth could be traced back to nothing but God's grace. He's a child of the promise. And this is Paul's point in telling this story. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. It doesn't matter if you could trace your lineage back to the church or some pastor or whoever it might be. What matters is, does your faith originate in God's grace? Does your faith originate in the will of God? Well, some might say, yeah, but that was Ishmael. He had, you know, a Gentile mother. And then once Isaac was born, they sent him away and Hagar and Ishmael away. Obviously, God chose Isaac to be a child of the promise. So then Paul counters with, well, what about Isaac's children? Jacob 
and Esau. See, Jacob and Esau didn't just have the same dad, but they also had the same mom. Same womb, even. And before any before they had done anything good or bad, God promised Rebekah that the older would serve the younger. Completely reversing the cultural expectation of His day. See, God, Paul takes comfort in, unconditionally elects some people Isaac was elected to be the heir of God's covenant favor. Jacob was elected to receive the blessing of his family. It was not dependent upon their actions. It was not dependent upon their deeds. It wasn't dependent upon their faith. But solely dependent on God's predestinating choice. See, boys and girls, what the Bible teaches us is that it's not enough to simply belong to a good family. Esau had a good family. It's not enough to simply go to the right school. When we get to heaven, the key to the pearly gates is not, you should see my grandma. She's faithful. Or I went to such and such Christian school. Or I did such and such things The Bible says the key to the pearly gates is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. And another thing, mom and dad, if one of your children isn't following the Lord, it does not mean you have failed as a parent. Look at Abraham. Look at Isaac. Both had children who didn't believe. We need to trust in the eternal purposes of God that they will be worked out according to His good pleasure even in our children. Mom and Dad, you need to be reminded this morning, you can't save your children. Mom, you can't save your kids. Dad, you cannot force your children into heaven. Paul is comforted here. Only God can save. He will do His part. Paul will pray. He will teach. He will preach. He will lead. But he's leaving the rest to God. So must we. We must pray. We must preach. We must teach. We must lead. But we need to leave the rest in the hands of the Almighty. And so we come to that great subject of God's election. This is where Paul places his trust. See, God rejected Ishmael and chose Isaac. He rejected Esau and chose Jacob. But this is the crescendo of Paul's argument. What were they chosen for? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. The word election means to choose. Or to call out. And it's the biblical idea 
that before the foundations of this world were laid, God chose certain people to be saved to the praise of His grace. And in His just judgment, the canons of Dort say, He leaves others in their wickedness and hardness of heart. We see this all throughout the Bible. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn with me to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul writes to this church, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Likewise, Jesus says to His disciples, it was not you who chose Me, but I who chose you. See, the purpose of election, Paul gets to, is not just that they would be patriarchs. That Isaac and Jacob would be the patriarchs of their family. But the purpose of the election is that they are the sovereign and divine objects of God's favor. Predestined to eternal life in Christ. Referring to God's election, His sovereign election, His unconditional election, those who chose by the Father for Himself and by Himself. And notice here, the grounds of election. Why did God choose Isaac? Why did God choose Jacob? Not based on their works. Not what they bring to the table. But it's wholly of God's purpose. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Before these boys were born, before they had done anything good, God had circled their names in the Lamb's book of life. The reason some are Christians today and not others is not found in us. God doesn't elect us because you are handsome. He doesn't elect us because you can bring something good to the table. Paul will say in Romans 9, verse 16, it is not Him who wills, nor Him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. See, that's the grounds of election. Nothing in you, but everything in God. Now naturally, some people always say about the doctrine of election, how is it that God would choose some people to everlasting life and then leave others to eternal punishment? It's not fair, we say. Why can't He choose everybody? But I want to show you in this last verse, verse 13, the nature of election. Jacob, I have loved. See, the more logical question is, how is it possible for a God whose righteousness demands that sin be punished ordain any to everlasting life? See, the reality is is that God didn't have to save anyone. But He was moved with love for sinners like you and like me. In love He sent His Son 
Jesus Christ. In love He sent Him to die. Not because any are better or talented or any other thing, but simply because God loved. This brings great comfort to Paul, even as he sees that many people are perishing in their sins and in their unbelief. Jesus commands their destiny. And not a single one who God has elected in His grace will fail to attain to the fullness of Christ's love. Not because they are good. Not because the Jews are worthy. Not because the Gentiles are more worthy. But simply because God has loved. In a moment we'll sing the hymn How vast the benefits divine which says these words, safe in the arms of sovereign love we ever shall remain, nor shall the rage of earth or hell make thy sure counsel vain, not one of all the chosen race, but but shall to heaven attain. They will share abounding grace and there with Jesus reign. Safe in the arms of sovereign love. See, that's the point of God's merciful election. If it was up to you and to me, we would have never have chosen Jesus. We would have always stayed rejecting Him in our sins. But out of love, He turned our hearts to Him. And His eternal purposes shall stand. This leads Paul to the resounding conclusion, to the question, has God's Word failed? No. You see, the reason some believe and others reject are because God willed some to acceptance. He didn't choose. If He didn't choose us, we would have rejected Him completely. But there is great comfort for us that salvation is ours by sovereign grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do give You thanks this morning that even though there are many whom in our friends and families, our lives we see have rejected Your Word, there is comfort for us because we can cry out to You and we can see in Your Word that You have a sovereign purpose and that not a single one whom You have called will fall from Your grace. We are not worthy of Your salvation. We do not deserve it, but it is purely of love. Father, we thank You for this comfort that, get, that You give to us in Your eternal decision. Comfort us this, eve, this morning, especially as we leave this place thinking of those who have rejected You. We pray, Lord, that if it be Your will, You would draw them to Yourself, sovereignly, powerfully, in Christ the Lord, and in whose name we pray. Amen.